Revelation 17. All right. Let me do a recap. You ready? Here's your weekly review. Book of Revelation. And it really kind of goes along with the message I gave this morning. We know the end of the book. Aren't you glad we have a book of Revelation? It's hard to study it because it's hard to understand all the symbolisms and so forth in it. And then when you do understand the symbolisms, it's not a real pleasant book, is it? You've got judgments. You've got death. You've got people cursing God, gnawing on their tongues, darkness, waters turned to blood. I mean, you can go down the list. It's not a real popular book to study. We'd rather take spit baths in Philippians, the joy of the Lord, right? Instead of reading the Revelation. But like when John took the scroll and he put it in his mouth, it was sweet to his taste, but it turned sour in his stomach. To you and I who are believers, to you and I who hold the promises of ruling with Christ on his throne and living in a world with an eternal body, a glorified body that never feels pain with no death, being able to enjoy the creation with all of our senses. To this, this is sweetness. When we see these signs coming, we cry out like John at the end of the book, saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Because we know what's going to happen when Christ comes. The curse will be lifted, and you won't see the pain and the misery that you see today. But that sweetness that we taste is only for a moment, isn't it? Because then when we start digesting the information, what thoughts come to mind? Well, this is going to be great for us who believe, but what about my sister Terry who doesn't believe? What about my parents? I'm not saying my parents, my sister Terry, but you know, what about the people around us who don't? And all of a sudden it turns sour in your stomach and it hurts you because you don't want them going through this. When we study that text this morning, we can live in a world and... and work for treasures in heaven because we have a revelation. God did not leave us here and did just kind of put three dots at the end. You know, Jesus ascended on the Mount of Olives and the apostles looked up. No, we've got the epistles on how we're to live. And then we've got the revelation when Jesus Christ comes back. And so that gives us great faith and it gives us great hope and it allows us to keep going. We got the big picture. And we can have that big smile on our face when people are taunting us and making fun of us. Saying, look at all I have. Look at my living for the now. And you're living for this pie in the sky. Well, we've got the prophecies of the book. And all the previous ones have come true like they were written. So I have to believe these will come true also. So we see this book, the book of Revelation, prophesied back in Daniel 9, where there's going to be a seven-year period which God is going to purify, purge this earth for the king, a descendant of David, to come and take his rightful position upon the throne, an earthly kingdom with an earthly throne and earthly subjects that he will rule. And his subjects will rule with him in a kingdom where the sun never sets, to quote a Bible verse, and the deserts will bubble forth with new life, trees will clap their hands and the mountains will sing and wine will flow from the mountains like streams of water. Yay. And so he's going to take his position, but God has to purge the earth of evil. He has to bring men to repentance, and he has to judge wicked because he is a just king. But before he can even come down, one event has to happen. The Jewish people, whom all the promises were made, have to accept the Messiah. 
And you see that. John sees the vision of the throne room of God. He sees the scroll, the title deed to the kingdom in his hand. Jesus Christ is the only one worthy enough to take it. He takes it. And on the scroll are seven seals. It's got writing on both sides, which are judgments. They're full and complete. And he starts to open these seals. And one, two, three, four, five, six seals are open. And John sees judgments that come down upon the earth. The first one being the political antichrist who makes a covenant of peace between the two warring nations of the Ishmaelites and the Israelites. He goes, one, two, three, four, five, six seals, and he stops. And he says, wait a minute, you're probably wondering, what about the Jewish people? How can this be happening without the Jewish people accepting Jesus as the Messiah? And what about the church? He says, let me back up. And he goes back before the, the first seal is open chronologically. In chapter 7, he tells us about 144,000 Jewish people who have the Holy Spirit. They're sealed. They come to faith. 12,000 from 12 tribes of Israel, the number 12 being complete number of delegation, God's number, which means the entire nation comes to faith, or at least the leadership. Then it also has a vision of a multitude standing before the throne from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. That's the rapture of the church, I believe. Then he says, all right, this is what happens to the nation Israel. They come to faith, and I think that happens before the first seal is open, which starts off the seven-year period, and the church is taken out. Then he goes to the seventh seal. He picks it back up, and out come seven angels, and they blow their trumpets, and more judgments come down upon the earth, more severe than the first set. They increase like the pains of a woman in childbirth. He goes through the first six trumpeters, then he stops and he gives another parenthesis. We see an angel comes down, a foot on the land, foot on the sea, to show complete domination of the planet. And all the judgments that are coming down are not just chaotic and random. God has predestined them and preordained them and is incontrollable. Then you see two witnesses. Possibly Elijah and Moses. I believe Elijah and Enoch. The two people who have not died. And they are witnessing for three and a half years, calling people to repentance. And then the seventh angel blows his trumpet. And then out come seven more angels with these bowls in which the high priest used to carry the blood into the Holy of Holies. And each angel is going to pour the blood on the planet, judgments. God's going to atone the entire cursed planet with blood. More severe plagues. These, this time, these plagues are poured out on man. The seal judgments and the, seal judgments and the trumpet judgments were poured out on the earth. The bowl plagues, they're called, are poured out directly on man. Before these bowl judgments are poured out, he gives us a big parenthesis. Okay, now follow me. One, two, three, four, five, six seals, a parenthesis. He goes back, 144,000 Jews sealed in the rapture. Then he picks it back up chronologically with the sixth seal. Seven trumpeters come out. One, two, three, four, five, six trumpets. Another parenthesis the angel on the planet, and then the two witnesses. Then he picks up, the seventh trumpeter blows his trumpet. Out come the angels with the bowls, but before they pour them out, he says, let me stop the whole show, and let me take two chapters, uh, 12 through 14, and let me just give you a brief description of all the characters and the roles that they play. And he talks about the dragon, which is Satan, and the woman, Israel. He talks about a beast that comes out of the sea, which is a political antichrist, and a beast that comes out of the earth, which is a religious antichrist. And we see that he brings about a world economical system, and he causes everyone to take a mark, a mark of the beast, 666. 
which is, I believe, some kind of transponder chip or some mechanism that allows you to buy, sell, or trade. All your financial transactions will be done through this and so forth. We've already got the technology. Then he shows again the 144,000 that make it all the way through the tribulation period and are with Jesus on Mount Zion, which is prophesied in Zechariah 14, where he will come down. Just like the angel said, this Jesus going up on Mount of Olives will come down on the same mountain in the same way. Then we see the angels and the roles that they play. And they're the ones, they're agents of God's wrath that pour out judgments. And then we see Jesus, who's seated on a cloud with a sickle, and he harvests the earth. Okay? Now, we're up to chapter 17. So far, so good on that? I'm going to keep doing that every week so you'll know it. Because that's the hardest aspect of studying this book is trying to figure it out chronologically. Now we hit chapter 7. Well, I'm sorry. Let me back up. Chapter 15 and 16. You've got uh, the final judgments. Okay? After chapter 14, he picks it back up. And now these angels start pouring out their judgments, these bowls, upon the earth. Then chapter 17, what we see is the result of those bowls being poured out. Now let me back up. If you remember in chapter 14, when he's describing the angels, let's take a look back there so I can set up chapter 17 for us. John says in verse 6 of chapter 14, He says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who lived on the earth. And he said in a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, sea, and the springs of the water. Okay? Or of water. A second angel. Now, the first angel is describing chapter 15 and 16. Okay, the eternal gospel going out and the final judgments. The second angel comes out and says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. That's going to describe chapters 17 and 18. And then the third angel comes out, and that's going to describe the rest of the book. Okay? So what we're seeing here in chapters 17 and 18 is the, is the destruction of of the final political and religious world empire. Now, if you remember, the political leader rises up and he unites the world economically and militarily, I believe, and politically. The religious antichrist comes and unites the world religiously. We can see that movement now. It's called the ecumenical movement. Let's put our doctrinal differences aside. Did you see that article in the paper where the Pope announced that you don't need to believe in Jesus as the Son of God to have eternal life and get into heaven? All right? So we're seeing it. Chipping away. Chip, 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 chip. And what they're going to do is just embrace all these different religions. We don't care about doctrinal differences. Okay? I see it. I get calls all the time. I had someone call me this week. Wanted to know my position on women in pastors or women in leadership positions in the church and what resources I used to back up my position. I said, simple. Take your Bible. 1 Timothy 2.11. God says through Paul that he does not allow a woman to be in a leadership position over men. Not because she's not capable, but because God is a God of order and there are certain roles. Well, what about women in elder positions? No, because a woman can't be the husband of one wife. That was a qualification for an elder. 
and I just went down the list and he didn't like it okay you've got people that are splitting off from the Baptist convention because they want to be more liberal in the interpretation of the Bible that's fine you go ahead but God will take the lampstand as for us as for faith Bible church we're gonna obey this thing to the letter I'd much rather do that than to go off and try to interpret it my own and go beyond what is written like Paul says don't do and so you've got this huge movement and so you're gonna have a one-world religious system and I believe the true Christians will be out of the way which will allow this to all come together where they've got a form of godliness yet denying his power that's all prophesied and this world religious leader unites this world church together with the political leader and you have church and state united that's what we're going to see in chapter 17 and then in chapter 18 it all comes tumbling down it looks good for a while it looks like it's going to be successful it looks like that this movement is going to bring peace and unity to this planet. And everybody's going to be hailing it and going, this is a great thing. And it will be on the surface. But we know from the Bible that that will not come until Jesus Christ comes and rules. Because why? You still have corrupt men, sinful man, evil man ruling this planet. And I don't care what position he's in and I don't care how good he thinks he is if he's not running under the auspices of God and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he will do evil. We got a whole four books in your Old Testament that prove it. First, second Kings, first, second Chronicles. Where you see godless kings ruling and they sacrifice babies in the fire and they and they do things for their own grandizement. Okay? Alright, so that's where we are. Chapter seventeen and eighteen. We'll probably just look at seventeen. Because there's a lot we need. This, this chapter here probably has more symbolisms or symbols in it than any of the other chapters, and it's difficult to understand. But we, being great theologians and theologianettes, will have no problem, will we? You can wow your friends. All right, 17.1. One of the seven angels, that is, one of the seven who had the judgment bowls, came to John and said, Come, and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters now we're going to find out the prostitute is the false church she's called a prostitute because she commits adulteries with the kings of the earth in James he calls the people of his day an adulterous people and the Old Testament in Ezekiel God is talking to Israel Ezekiel is prophesying in Babylon in 597, I think, 597, 605, 597. And he's prophesying to Israel saying that God is going to destroy Jerusalem if you don't turn from your ways. And of course they didn't. And in 586, Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed it. 605, he took the first wave of captives, Daniel, and Sedrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, uh, Azariah and I can't remember the other one anyway he brings them to Babylon and in 597 second wave of captives Ezekiel is amongst those and in 586 he just destroys the place from 605 to 586 God is crying out to his people through these prophets through Jeremiah back in Jerusalem 
through Daniel in the middle of Nebuchadnezzar's court and through Ezekiel, who's prophesying to all the Jews outside the court. In the book of Ezekiel, God says, this is what you say to the people. When I found you, you were like a baby kicking in its blood, and I took you because nobody else wanted you. You were not some great, phenomenal nation. You were just this lowly people, and I took you. See also Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth. He says, I took you, I wiped the blood off you, I clothed you, I, I loved you, I grew you up until your breasts formed, basically, and then I married you. Israel was the wife of God. And then he gets graphic, and then he says, then what did you do? You forgot me, you forgot me as your husband, and you went and prostituted yourself to the other nations. He says, basically, you went after him like a woman would go after donkey genitals. You spread your legs and you offered yourself to all the other nations and you prostituted yourself. That's some graphic language, isn't it? That's what you have here. You have this false church in which the kings of the earth prostitute themselves with this false church, hooked up. Excuse the vernacular, okay? That's the idea. Now, the question is, where's the real church? I believe we're not here simply because we're going to see here she has a cup and it says that it's the abominations and basically she's drunk with the blood of the saints anybody who comes against this ecumenical movement will be killed now you and I who know the Bible you and I who know the truth let's say this movement gets some great speed and we're still here on the planet and we're going to come up to him with our Bible open and we're going to say wait a minute you have to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord to go to heaven you have to believe that he's God. No, you don't get baptized to get to heaven. We just go down the list of what it takes to get to heaven. And they look at us and they say, get thee out of my face. And they, cap, they cut your head off. Okay? Or they just kick you out without the mark of the beast and you die anyway. That's what you're going to see happen. Now, 100 years ago, that would be kind of far-fetched, wouldn't it? Maybe 200 years ago. But in our time and our day, we can see it, can't we? This is possible. These scenarios that I'm painting for you, or the Bible is painting for you, can happen. We see everything, everything moving in this direction. World economical system united, we see it. World political system, we see it. We see the religious movement in our time and day. That's what's scary. 100 years ago, it wasn't happening. Even really 50 years ago, not so much. But boy, we see it, and it's moving fast, gang. All right. Be encouraged, okay? And I don't know. I'm not a gloom and doomer. I'm a realist. I'm a biblicist, okay? This is what the Bible says. I hope that God tarries for another 100 years. I think maybe he's going to tarry for at least another four. If he gets in there, I'm still not dancing yet. I'll wait till after the 18th. I don't trust that man. I already talking about electors being whatever. Just keep praying. I think God I think God brought this nation through all that junk just to get his his children on their knees. Just like he had Lot taken off. Just like he said to Abe, I'm going to go ahead and take out Sodom and Gomorrah and it squeezed like a toothpaste tube a prayer out of Abraham. And I think that's what God was doing in this nation, squeezing a prayer out of us. Because I don't know about you, but it got, <laughs> I got to the point towards the end of that thing, I was begging Jesus all day long. I was like, please, put him in the White House. Please, Jesus. I was begging him. 
So hopefully, you know, he can get in there and do some stuff. All right, let's go. He says, I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters, the waters of the Gentile nations. We saw that. The beast came out of the waters in Daniel chapter 7. The beast comes out of the sea, the political leader. Waters are Gentile nations, evil Gentile nations. Verse 2 says, With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Just drunk. It's kind of like the idea of when uh, Moses came down from getting the commandments. And Joshua said, well, it sounds like there's victory in the camp, war. He says, no, that's immorality. And they were in a drunken orgy. They were intoxicated with their godlessness. That's the idea. They'll be saying, Paul says, peace and safety, peace and safety. Verse 3, then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the desert. Now, we don't know, you know, physically, Ezekiel, it says that God picked him up by his hair and took him from Babylon to Jerusalem and showed him what the priests were doing, sacrificing unclean animals in the temple, setting up idols in the temple. Paul says there's a man in the spirit or in the flesh, I don't know, but was taken up to the third level of heaven. I imagine, I don't know if this is a vision or if he was physically transported in the spirit. I don't know. But it says, or he says, that the angel took him out into the desert. I think that's significant. I think that's symbolic of a uh, spiritual wasteland. There, he says, there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Okay, so here's the picture. A woman, which is the false church, she's referred to as a prostitute, sitting on the beast, and the beast has seven heads and ten horns. Now, number one, she's sitting on this political leader. We know that because chapter 12 showed us the beast, and I'll get to it. We'll kind of go through this and peel it apart. The idea here is the religious leader, or the religious ecumenical church, the prostitute, is supported by the political system. And it also shows that this religious system is in control because he who's in the saddle is what? Is in control, running the show, which is how it was supposed to be in the Old Testament. The king ruled the people, but who was supposed to rule the king? God. And who was supposed to keep the king in line with God's word? The priests, the religious system of the day, remember? So that's what you see. But it's a mockery. It's a false one. And it says, verse 4, the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet. Those were the royal uh, imperial colors of Rome. You know that? And I'll, I'll, get you, I'll get to why that is in a minute. And was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She's very wealthy. Now you see that. The Catholic Church is one of the wealthiest churches in the world. The Mormons, same thing. Great wealth, <clears throat> and it's got the Roman imperial colors. Okay? She had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Now, a lot of people believe the cup that Jesus said, take this from me, was the cup of sin, basically, that he knew he was going to be separated from God. Didn't know how long. That would be the only thing that would cause Jesus to fear. How God can separate himself from God, I don't know. But remember, he said, take this cup meaning that he had to take the sins upon the world, upon himself, and that would separate him from the Father. It wasn't death that he feared, or pain, 
or suffering. It was that aspect. That's what they believe here, this cup filled with the abominations, the adulteries, the sins of the world. Uh, and here's the title that was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Now, why is it a mystery? Okay, mystery is something that was not previously revealed in the Bible in the Old Testament that's revealed now. One author said that it was uh, the mystery of the iniquity in its final form. Okay, why is she called Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes? Where does this take you back? And we covered this text when we went through it. Anybody remember? Genesis chapter 11. The first system, false religious system, that felt that they could build a name for themselves and a system that would make themselves righteous before God. It was called Babel, Babili, confusion, the gate of heaven or the gate of God. Okay? And so what they're doing here in this text is going all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. And they're showing that that was the mother and all religions that come from her, she gives birth to all false religions. All false religions. And there's 30,000 of them in the world today, even more, can go all the way back to Babel, where man said, no, we're going to build a tower. We're going to build our own uh, way, our own system into heaven. Forget God. Forget being righteous before God. Forget being obedient. We can do it ourselves. And that's what religion says. No, you don't need to believe in Jesus as God or Lord to get to heaven. You don't need just faith. You need faith plus baptism, faith plus communion, faith plus, faith plus, faith plus. All that has been birthed from Babylon the Great. Okay? And so what you see here, this prostitute, is the totality of the Tower of Babel forward in all the false religious systems of the world wrapped up into this one woman or this one symbol riding the beast. Now, it says in verse 6, I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. So, if we're taken out, there's going to be Christians on the earth that are going to be martyred because they're going to go against this religious system and call them to the carpet and they'll be killed. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished, John said. Verse 7, Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. I think he's astonished because I think he sees a false church. And he sees this false church kill real Christians. Okay? If you think about it, there was no concept of a false church when John was on the planet because those who held to Jesus Christ were killed. He was exiled on the island of Patmos, remember? And so he's astonished. He's seeing this world ecumenical religious system and any Christian that goes against it is killed. So he says, I'm going to explain to you the woman and the beast. Okay? Verse 8, The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to, to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. Now, if you remember, this is the political Antichrist. And it says something about this guy three times 
that causes the world to be astonished. Anybody remember what it was? What happened to this, this particular political leader that astonished the world? And it said it three times back in chapter 14. Anybody remember? Look at 13.3. We going deep. Cookies on the top shelf this morning. All right, thirteen three says one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed, and the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Okay, and then it says it again in verse. Let me see, verse twelve, where it says uh, he set up. Let me see. He exercised all authority of the first beast on his behalf, made the earth and his heavens worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And then down in uh, 14 says the same thing. He ordered to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. What did we say was going to happen with this false political leader that's going to cause the whole world to be astonished and follow him? I think it's a false resurrection, a deception of some kind. Be it a clone, be it a staged assassination and then all of a sudden resurrection I don't know but that's what he says when he says who once was now is not and is yet to come okay a false resurrection it's gonna cause it's gonna cause everybody to be astonished and in verse 9 look what he says he says this calls for mind with wisdom the seven heads now he's gonna describe the beast the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Now, we know what he's doing is he's describing to us the area. Rome has seven hills. He also says these seven heads are symbolic of seven kings. Five have fallen, he says. One is, and the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. And the beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king and he belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction okay so now we have this beast it has ten horns seven heads but if you go back to chapter 12 or actually chapter 13 if you remember 13 what he says I saw a beast coming out of the sea he had ten horns and seven heads if you go all the way back to Daniel chapter 7, you see the same thing, a beast with ten horns. One of the horns has eyes and a mouth that blasphemes. We know that he is talking about this political leader that comes up. We know that he's not only talking about a political leader, but also an empire. Because with a leader, you've got an empire. The ten horns, we'll talk about it in just a minute. Focus on the seven heads. He says these seven heads... We know it's in the vicinity of Rome. We know that these seven heads are symbolic of seven kings. Five were, one is now, one is to come. That's seven. What he's describing here are the five previous empires that arose before Rome. Watch this. You had Egypt, you had Assyria, you had Babylon, you had the Medo-Persians, and the Greeks. That's five. Those were the five world powers that had fallen up to this time, okay? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persians destroyed the Babylonians, and the Greeks destroyed the Medo-Persians. 
Who destroyed the Greeks? The Romans. That's the kingdom that's in place at this time that the revelation is given. What's the one that will come? That is a revised Roman Empire. If you remember, 3rd century A.D., the Roman Empire was dispersed. It never came back together. You had ten identifiable powers. That's where the Gauls, the Brits, the Spaniards, France, and all so forth came back or came out. The Bible talks about a time when all these world powers will come together again and you will have what's called a revised Roman Empire. We call it a European Union or a ten-nation confederation. You've heard me talk about it before. That's the one that will come. And it says the eighth king that comes will be the head of this revised Roman Empire, meaning a one-world government. Okay? Now, again, 2,000-year-old text, and it's all coming to play just like it's described. Then he says, verse 12, The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. Okay, and again, ten-nation confederation, he will rise up out of them. That's Daniel's vision of the beast with the horn that comes up, the little one, and he will rule these other ten. Okay, so we believe this leader is going to come up out of that European Union, or at least he's going to take charge of it. Don't know. It says they have authority for a little while. They receive their kingdom, but it's short-lived. Seven-year period, remember? Most people think he comes into power, full power, mid-trib, he receives the power from Satan, his throne, authority, and power. He kills anyone who comes against him. And he exalts these ten kings. They take control over certain territories, I don't know, for a short time, but then they're destroyed. Verse 13, they have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. So Jesus comes down at the end of the tribulation period. These people turn their weapons, try to blow them out of the sky, but it's not going to happen. They're going to be destroyed. Verse 15, Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked, and they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So what's going to happen to this false religious system towards the end of the tribulation period? What's the political system, the ten horns, which is the unified political system of this beast, this Antichrist? What is this beast going to do to the woman? Destroy her. It's like a bad western. You heard me say it. Where two gangsters or two, two outlaws get together, they rob the stagecoach or something, one gets greedy and snuffs out the other one to take all the booty. That's what you've got here. He will not share his glory with anybody. So he killed this ecumenical movement, snuffs them out. Verse 17, For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purposes by agreeing to give the beast their powers to rule until God's words are fulfilled. Isn't that comforting? I love the book of Revelation because it shows all the events that are going to happen. You're going, man, this is horrendous. But God is in control. God is in control. And it's all a fulfillment of everything God has written. Verse 18, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. That's the religious system. Okay? So we'll stop here next week. God willing, we will pick up chapter 18 and we will see who this is that's destroyed.